Hey everyone, <laughs> welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I think we're live. I, I still show us connecting as opposed to live, but I think Vlad hit the button. Okay, I see that we're live now. Awesome. Uh, Ryan and I were having a wild conversation about as a service versus one-time fee versus changing from legacy and, and everything else. And we had everything from um, versus Unreal Engine and how that has changed to D and D. And Vlad says he's got another story. And so we are going to go back to the roots of Manufacturing Hub. And Vlad is going to share a very untopical story before we go in and kick off. Vlad, what do you got? Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, a company called HashiCorp, which ultimately controls a software tool called Terraform, which is essentially a parallel to Kubernetes, where you deploy infrastructure as code for cloud services, also changed the licensing model from open source to a business license, which ultimately means that it's no longer open source, right? And so what happened was... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know the exact dates, it was um, August, early September, there was a fork made by a community and that became OpenTF. So it was Open Terraform. And now it was transferred. So again, a week ago, it was announced by the Linux Foundation that it has essentially taken over the open source project, and which is actually like a huge deal because they're going to incubate, they're going to inject, you know, like funding into it. And it was rebranded, or I guess like renamed to Open Tofu. So now it's the open source Terraform fork that is going to be like developed as a response to HashiCorp making it a business license. So I think, you know, like all of these things just to understand kind of the business interactions and like how people react to this. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot to be learned, regardless if it's, you know, in and Dragons or if it's a software company i think it's it's just very interesting to see how it all plays out interesting interesting no i i i think that, that it's interesting uh that looks like and i certainly think that there are business reasons that it makes sense and i certainly think that there are lots of enterprise organizations that are going to pay for things that could in theory be open sourced because they need the enterprise version and the cost of having a person or a couple of people on staff and the cost of potential downtime is far outweighed, far outweighs the thousands of dollars or the tens of thousands of dollars that something would cost to go by the enterprise version. So I, I think that that is very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take this moment to, to segue us back into the normal manufacturing hub conversation. Uh, welcome, uh, Ryan here. Uh, we will go ahead and kick off in just a moment. Um, I'll say that we are here concluding the last of our robotics conversations of which have been awesome. Thank you to the folks at Solus PLC, Solus PLC right up there, but also thank you to Vlad. Uh, who sold us PLC. Ryan, I don't know if you know, but originally when we were doing this, I felt like I, I thanked the folks watching live on Solos PLC's YouTube channel and like embarrassed Vlad for the first 40 shows. So it, it, we're almost completely going back to the roots here on episode 136. But no, you guys are new here. Welcome. If you've been here. Absolutely. If you guys are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. If you are new here, we do our very best to have a, a lively conversation over the course of the next hour or so. If you guys have questions or comments, please feel free to go ahead and drop them in the chat. We will do our very best to go ahead and get to those questions. Uh, our very best to go get to those questions. Please feel free to go ahead and kind of confirm amongst yourself. If you guys have really technical questions or other things, we will do our very best to come back to them. We'll either Vlad, myself, or Ryan, or perhaps someone else will come back in order to go ahead and try to answer that. But without further ado, 
everyone welcome to manufacturing hub my name is dave this guy down here is vlad we've got episode 136 today again we're talking about robotics with ryan lillibridge uh, of mission uh ryan welcome to the show thank you for being here yeah glad to be here dave looking forward to it awesome thank you, thank you so excited thank, thank you so much for taking the time ryan really appreciate it before we dive into the topic of robotics could you give us a bit of your background how did you get into manufacturing and industrial automation? What was your career like? And ultimately, what are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So I uh, started when I was a wee young lad, I guess. Your curiosity, right? So born and raised in West Michigan, um, growing up, uh, curious about how a lot of different things worked. So this could sound like a lot of engineering stories. Um, my parents really helped kind of for that, and I credit them with a lot of that, uh, approved or unapproved. Uh, exposure to engineering and different. Uh, my dad was always kind of fixed stuff around the house. Um, and I started out with me holding the tools or getting the tools for him and holding the flashlight, right? Started out there and then um, find tools. And then as a good engineer always should, you should have Legos in your life uh, to what your imagination comes up with. And I do wish I had like the Legos they have today are like light years beyond where I was. So in the development of the internet, video games, all that kind of 80s, 90s fun, um, really cool. And I think inspirational as that technology came on board with computers and programming, et cetera. So that some exposure was approved and some was not approved. I would say um, smash my mom's watch with a hammer. Uh, I always remember that story. I don't know if she does, but uh, where uh, I watch, I want to know how it worked. Uh, my Sunday method, method was a hammer in the garage and smash it on the cement. And then take all the parts out and see how each one works and what doing right old i learned that that method of disassembly uh, makes it hard for reassembly so of just early childhood moving into that mm -hmm. um, about mm -hmm. go ahead. and i was going to ask I, I guess the disassembly method did you get to any root cause or you just kind of gave up a project as soon as you saw what the uh, components oh, wow. look like after this you know the uh, the curiosity bug can be really strong and uh, sometimes you, you forget about your logic, uh, thinking about thinking ahead. Uh, a lot of people tell you to live in the present. So I think I was living in the present at that time. And my curiosity was what's inside this thing. So smash it uh, to pieces out all the little gears, all the little hands, the different pieces and components of the watch. And then later the recognition that crap, I just smashed my mom's watch <laughs> and I can't put it back together. So. I think it was, um, wasn't a plan to put it back together until I was too far down the uh, disassembly plan to realize that I wasn't going to be able to. So maybe that's why it sticks with me because I had to go admit or hide that for a while. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Did that inspire you to pursue something on the mechanical side, electrical? What was your, I guess, yeah. takeaway from that? So I guess from there, you know, in high school was uh, interested in the sciences and science came easy to me uh, or kind. So in, in high school, I did uh, computer programming classes. I did the electrothon car, if anyone's familiar with high school level electrothon cars. Uh, at the time it was lead acid batteries and how can you charge them or what are the different charging points to get them to go further. Uh, and then teachers in high school that introduced me to different things. So my high school teachers taught me like a design of experiment DOE in the engineering class, which I, now I realize in high school is pretty big deal, right? Um, 
So we did a cinnamon roll experiment where you learn to change variables. From there, I went to look at different universities for engineering uh, and at Grand Valley State University, which is here in West Michigan, mainly because of the, it was close to home was one, but the other side was, it's a very practical program and they're a lot of hands-on, right? They had a CNC facility where you could make your own stuff. They had computer labs for programming at the time at Megaboards. Uh, just really tied in well with the industry and local partners. So it was that. And then they have a required co-op program where you do multiple semesters of co-op. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I did, I wanted to go there. I wanted to have that experience and get into that real life practical engineering side of it. So through that, I did a mechanical engineering degree and then a product design and manufacturing degree as well. And I started my co-op at an automation company. And because I was doing the co-op there, I changed a couple of my course selections into like PL programming, uh, a little bit more of the programming side on some of that stuff. And also I had a senior project through Grand Valley where I had to build a machine for a real live company that was paying us money to build the press on the timeline. Uh, so that experience in college was really good along with the co-op experience. I'm curious, I guess, if I can uh, ask that story, how did you choose mechanical? Because it sounds like you had some programming experience, you kind of on the controls, but I, I also get that question often, right? Like people who are still, yeah. you know, like school or early on, like they're trying to decide between like electrical, mechatronics, mechanical, maybe like even computer engineering. So mm-hmm. we'll decide on mechanical. I think it was the tangible side of it, to be honest, Vlad, the, um, the, the, like the logical side of the programming, um, PLC and, and seeing that control, but figuring out the mechanics and the actuators, um, on both at the time. So it was kind of in both part of the reason I did a mechanical engineering degree and product design was the product design degree required the use of. Uh, one of the things was like a coffee machine or a baby food machine. So you needed some logic in there with an app mega to program some things. So I like that product design side of it because it, it meshed both together and I had to have the mechanics work with the electrical and the logics and the programming all has to work together for it to be successful. So mechanical degree was just my growing up learning to fix cars, growing up fixing different appliances that broke my dad and those kind of things were the mechanical side of that. And then the curiosity and the exposure to PLCs and programming through my co-op at an automation company was like, man, I want to get more of that programmatic side in there as well. So I guess I don't have a milestone moment or a, a pivotal moment where I said, yeah, this is all, I want a hundred percent one direction or the other. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, you know, like look back in hindsight, I would have loved to do more software type of stuff, right? Yeah. Just because for me, it's almost kind of like opposite thinking. I think we can create a lot more in software because there is no, well, there's limitations, but there's ultimately less physical limitations. So if anything, like I would argue, I can do more things in software, but see, like you want to see things being made. So I understand why like mechanical makes sense, but it, it's interesting. Yeah. Sure. And I th- well, through my too, I was, I did a automation company. I was, did a great job. Lots of mentors through that organization and through that company. And then also part of one of my stints was in the CNC department, uh, probing, uh, machine code. 
So exposure to G codes and other things like that, but also I really, you know, in CAD, similar to software, you can draw up whatever you want. There's not limitations to what different angles and uh, can design. But when those moved into the CNC department, I learned a lot about what you can actually physically make with the, the subtractive manufacturing, that kind of stuff with the end of our, with the end mills and those kind of things. So I really liked where you can create virtually, but then how do you translate it into real world actionable, right? Where I ended up on that side, I guess, if we bought it, right? Dave, what are your thoughts? I, I think that I trend much closer to Ryan and Ryan's background in, in on the mechanical side of, I like to see things work um, as opposed to the, uh, the software side. But I think that a uh, long time listener of this will, will know that it takes uh, disciplines in order to really particularly make anything work. Um, so if I can kind of fast forward us, you, sure. you, you've left, uh, left uh, university. How did you end up in robotics, right? Like, I think that we understand how you got on the mechanical side of things. I, I think at the core, there's a lot of mechanical to go with robots, especially with all those arms and joints. But, but yeah. how did you get yourself into robotics? Oh, yeah, I think it's through automation. So with the co-op experience in automation, I started to see robots for the first time, uh, really get that exposure. Through college, we did, you know, smaller robot things where it was um, on a foul line on the floor, uh, program these things not to hit walls. So smaller little um, robots that drove around. So through that, I had this exposure to the smaller level robots. And then as automation went on, I ultimately thought I'd be an automotive designing cool sports cars, right? It's kind of where I, as an engineer, I went like, I'm going to design fighter jets or I'm going to design sports cars. Um, automation, I got to work with some of the automotive companies and some were really good. Some were um, guys actually just designing a door handle. No offense to anyone doing that. There's people that love that part, but that was what it was year over year is improving that singular aspect of a vehicle or different parts of that. And when I got in the automation, I'm like, man, there's robots going into every different industry. And it just intrigued me all the different and versatile ways that you can deploy and use that tool um, gateway, right? So I, I think that's where I, I really fell in love with automation and fell in love with robotics. Um, yeah, and that's just kind of going and growing and uh, it's exciting. There's robots are evolving. They keep getting um, tools are better and better. So to me, it's just an industry that is bound to grow. It's bound to expand probably beyond what any of us can imagine at this point. And the demand for automation robotics is, is there. So it's mm -hmm. a stable work environment and it's cool, right? Absolutely. So uh, kind of to what you guys are currently doing uh, on the robotic side, uh, can, can you tell us, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing? Maybe some of the applications you specialize in, uh, you know that everyone listening lo loves to hear about how people are using robots, uh, the robot or the robot behind you. And I think a couple of like little robot robotic models, even on the other side of you. Oh yeah. I, got the, I forgot I had those up there. Yeah. So, uh, just, uh, we're have robot models that we use and that's what we play. We just play around with them. So that's part of our simulation process is to grab one of these guys, whatever it may be. We'll grab one of these and that's how we simulate, right? So this real life size and then uh, that's you do our automation concept design. So any other integrators listening, this is a tool that you need 
to worry about and think about uh, for cycle time assessments. Also, you have to make robot noises when you do that. Because <laughs> that makes it more real. But uh, yeah, we're we doing with the robots at Mission uh, and robots for our customers to enhance their productivity, right? It all comes down to what's production needs, what's happening in production, and then what are the goals for that and how do you achieve that? So I think that's kind of the base answer. Um, doing a robotics, uh, in a food, we're doing uh, agriculture, we're doing automotive parts, uh, we're doing furniture. Uh, so depending on what industry you're in, it's likely that uh, there are robots or a future vision for robots in that industry uh, or a part of it. So it's it'll every day, right? We're seeing robots do things that they haven't done before and our engineers get to like that out. Um, random pieces of things on a conveyor belt and then organize them back into some type of, uh, right? So I'm mm -hmm. talking a little bit general on that one, but. Um, are how do you program through different softwares for uh, changing models, right? So there's different models like that. How do you incorporate AI vision pick models with robotics for e-commerce and those things? So we see a lot of applications, and I think that's what's exciting for our team and for us is that it seems endless on what you can do. Do you guys build a lot of like very custom applications or do you try to reapply maybe a solution to various verticals? So we had a an interesting discussion about that with uh, Dave last week. And he said how, and I think like as engineers, we always want to work on newer and kind of like cooler things, if you want to call yeah. it that. And as business people, you want to be able to reapply the solution to, you know, like a problem because it makes it easier and standard. So do you guys have like maybe an approach to that? Or do you sit like in the middle and kind of conversation about that? What's your call when it comes to custom versus reapplicable? Yeah, I would say as a business, we're opportunistic on both, right? So if we can repeat ideas and repeat models, it uh, us out as a business, like you said, Vlad, uh, if we repeat machines from a customer and they want duplicates uh, for a second, third, fourth time, we get better at that, right? So as we improve, we can share some of those savings with our customer and we can also be more profitable through those duplicates. But a lot of what we do is custom each time, right? So parts different, things are different. But I would say within, like I said, I played with Legos as a kid. I would say there's all these little Lego blocks that you get as you do different custom projects. And some of those Lego blocks, you'll reuse that same format or that same model uh, again, through different different custom automation and different functions. So there are parts and pieces that we try to reuse or standardize per se um, process. There's standard snippets of PLC code uh, that work well for different configurations. There's different ways to put your code into the robot that's structured and allows multiple different controls engineers to plug into that equipment and understand that structure if someone else needs to plug in and say hey what it is we that's just having a standard comment methodology and structure methodology or if we're connecting a servo to a plc having a standard way to do some of that uh just be more effective as a company right and then also helps our service team if they're to go out and take a look at one of our pieces of equipment they're going to see something familiar right and as they see that something familiar they'll know where to go look or how to navigate that. So there are pieces and parts or Lego blocks 
that are often repeated or used through automation or maybe just applied differently for different applications. But majority of what we're doing is a custom invention um, out of known pieces. So uh, there is usually some part that's never been done before. So if you're familiar with automation or robotics, operators uh, can make it work most of the time. There are times where, well, I say we always make it work. We're going to stick with our customer until it works. But there are fringe projects where it can be hard to figure out. And you and the customer both know that you're in a mode of invention. Uh, and that's what keeps it exciting too for the customers and for our team is you're inventing that thing for the first time. Uh, it can be some percentage of your business. The other part has to be somewhat known um, technologies and in, in within a certain bandwidth, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I All right. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I would say maybe more of a comment on your earlier point when it comes to reusing code. Uh, not knowing what you guys are doing at Mission, I think there's not enough of that in our industry in general. I think that there's a big opportunity of standardizing where, mm -hmm. you know, if let's say like me and Dave are working on the same project, Vlad would have his own libraries. He comes in, he programs a certain way, and Dave comes in with his own libraries. I see a lot yeah. more of that. So I think companies are... Uh, in general, um, what I see are missing the opportunity to standardize and not reinvent the wheel between like each programmer. So I definitely agree, like you should be uh, mm -hmm. leveraging that. And I think that the OEMs are releasing more and more tools that make that possible, right? I think the the older hardware and sort of environments make it a little bit more difficult to kind of like recode or make libraries, but now it's becoming more and more accessible. So I, I really like that. I, I think that's going to be the difference between like the top tier integrators and people who are always like struggling to make sure everything's kind of fit better, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I will agree. Um, but on that, I will say most of the time, if two of us were programming, Vlad would program something and I would program the exact same thing very different. But anyone that knows me and Vlad knows that I would let Vlad program the thing and then I would just go steal 100% of his code and, and make my thing work because I know that that's the type of programmer that Vlad is. But, but I would agree with Vlad. I think that as we go down the path, because integration is such a large game, right? Because there's such a generally low barrier of entry almost anyone can go and so i think the the internal repositories and the libraries and how we go build up that that intellectual property and how we go transfer from one customer to the other customer and keep those learnings will definitely continue to set apart the best integrators versus for everyone else uh go ask you because i know that you said that you listed a bunch of really interactions including vertical farming which just fascinates me but i'm not going to take us down that tangent yet so you talked about automotive on one side you, you talked about food and beverage you talked about agriculture you talked about a bunch of different um locations are you seeing kind of any reoccurring themes because from the previous conversations we've had it seems like automotive you can walk into an automotive facility and they've figured out how to use maybe it's a little high 10,000 robots right we, we have roboticized as much as we possibly can versus we're seeing lots of other industries kind of the first 10 or dozens of robots um, outside of automotive. What are your kind of like key thoughts or takeaways of the industries and maybe the differences between them? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, what I've seen is, um, when, um, remember we had that pandemic thing happen. 
Well, companies have done a really good job uh, on a lot of different portions of it, and they're very experienced in it. And when you talk with those companies, like you were saying, Vlad, a lot of them will have kind of standards for code. Here's what we want to see. Here's how you got to do it. This is how we want it written. Um, the larger organizations that are doing automation have built out their standards so that as they deploy across multiple facilities, they can have that redundancy and their service team can figure that out. But in automotive through COVID, where I was heading with that was what they realize is when their operators are not there, there's still a layer that has not been automated, which is I have a hard piece of automation that already puts the part together. If someone puts the parts in the machine, but mm -hmm. lo and behold, I don't have anyone coming to work to put the parts in the machine. Mm -hmm. so what we've seen with some of that, and, and you guys have probably talked to a number of different companies that do this, but um, push to try and automate that next step of part loading and part unloading, which mm -hmm. then leads into how do I give, how do I increase robot perception? How, how mm -hmm. do I increase robot manipulation or part grippers, right? I think that's where you see some of those industries moving. Some of that has been developed over here in a warehouse industry where they're managing already multiple different um, and parts that their whole process is taking out of one box of bulk and trying to put that one into your order that's going to show up at your house. So how do I pick these random objects out and set them? So some of the same companies that are tackling maybe this e-com warehouse type vision AI find and pick were mm -hmm. then being transferred into automotive where the nice thing is sometimes I don't need that much AI. I can do it with a standard vision system because the part is always the same part because I'm going to make hundreds of thousands of these. I just don't have someone to pick it up and put it in. Maybe mm -hmm. the chance is the dunnage that I carry in. So I, I guess across those two different industries, you see cities, but I have seen Dave, with a lot more companies looking to get into automation that have it in the past, right? We said um, farming, uh, processing, construction. There are many industries that I would say we're not looking to automate as much as they should. Maybe it was kind of a conversation that they had once in a while and they were curious about it. And then through pandemic and labor shortages that will continue, uh, they've increased the push into that and said, man, we need to start figuring this thing out. And with those companies, it's more of a learning curve for them and come somewhat of a teacher to try and um, practices that we've learned across all the different automation, like, hey, you want to standardize or let's bring some maintenance people on to do training. Or So it builds out <clears throat> with the new adopters to the experienced teams. What are the different needs of both? And then how do we service those across the, the different networks? I... You know, like like that point, Ryan, that you mentioned towards the end, which is teaching also, and it, I guess like my assumption is you're referring to the end users, right? And I, I guess like I want to follow up that with a question, which is, you know, as a grader, you're almost a very critical link between sort of these like very innovative companies, let's call them that, that come up with, I want to say, solutions in some, to some extent that might be really great and might not be that good, right? So you have to maintain a balance of what's going to make sense for your customers, but also educate your customers on what's possible with some of these technologies. So I'm curious, maybe like how do those conversations go in, in a general sense? And how, I guess, who leads ultimately the adoption of those solutions? Is it customers coming to you and saying like, hey, like we have this problem, we'd like to figure it out? Or is it 
you bringing them some of those solutions and kind of explaining them what is truly possible beyond what they currently have? Yeah, I think a lot of times it's partners uh, are seeing solutions, uh, believe it's the right tool for them. So we, we have an ID lab here, and part of our responsibility as an integrator is to test those technologies out, try them, make sure they're robust for industry, make sure that they're going to perform the way that we promise them to. Um, we'll bring in different uh, vision systems, different grippers, different pieces and components and test them out. Sometimes that's with the customer, like, hey, we want to try this thing. Yeah, let's start with a proof of concept and see how it works and test it out. Other times we've tested them with a customer and we say, yes, this is what you're asking for is definitely what you need and it will work well for you. So let's go ahead with that. So I, I would say we see both. Our responsibility in that education place is to say, I've got a lot of people on my team with many years of experience and we've tried this technology. Here's, here's where it fits really well. Here's where it maybe doesn't fit or here's give it two more years and I guarantee it's probably going to be there. So part of our responsibility with those customers is to educate them on that and then what solutions are going to be um, enough for them and what they're looking for, right? Gotcha. Yeah, th that's interesting. That, uh, that makes sense. I didn't know that you guys had some kind of like an R&D department or lab you mentioned where you can test things out. So I think that's really, really uh, neat. Uh, let me like as a follow up on that, like in, in the current market, do you see sort of users pushing for those innovative solutions? Do you see them being a, a bit more fearful of uh, the maybe the industry or maybe the general economy is going like what's the sense that you're getting from them? Are they asking you for like a models and machine learning or are they more like, well, hey, move something from point A to point B. And that's kind of what, you know, like want to draw the line. Yeah, I, I would say we see. <clears throat> It's interesting, Vlad, it's shifted uh, decent, um, a lot of money going into VC and startups and technologies in the last few years. And mm -hmm. I think inflation has maybe changed some of that. And some of those startups and technologies that are were advancing and, and pushing really hard really have to show a valid business model um, roadmap to success. So I think part of that selection process has maybe been narrowed and a little more critically um, did along the right lines as we've moved through this last year and that VC money is maybe a little bit harder to come by for those those fringe AI models, the fringe options um, that were happening. Mm -hmm. So we need to do our diligence on when those are applied. So testing those on the labs, but there's some really cool stuff that is happening there. There's uh, AI vision models that you train in a few um, pictures, you take five pictures, which used to be, you know, take 500 pictures to teach the AI model for quality inspection. Other systems that are five pictures um, uses a ton of the Keyance IV3 for uh, a lot of general purposes because of that teachability and ease of use and trainability. Um, a ton of technology out there for that that's exciting. And then we do see application of machine learning models. We have some systems that are doing, um, being with a partner that essentially find and learn that model and it learns its pick success rate as it goes and learns how to pick those components better as it progresses. So it's cool to see that stuff. It's cool to work with the companies that are developing that. It's also cool to see them programming and then putting stuff into chat GPT to 
do segments of code and scratch a little bit and go like, no, no, I, and different layers and levels of using language learning models for that AI model. Uh, it's so fun. I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's a lot of fun to do that. And then um, applications we're working with partners to develop those some models internally for very specific type vision applications where we want it tuned into this product and we want to find that and pick it. Right. So we, our team gets to learn through that. So recent, uh, I think we still have an opening for control software engineer. Uh, that's to explain what that is. We're seeing a lot more marriage of software into the robotics realm and a need for user interfaces, uh, more tying um, these into robotics, streaming to robots. So there's these different avenues where software is coming in and not robotic software native on the robot, but outside software uh, that's being used to do the motion planning of robotics. And there's a time and a place for that one. That's right. But um, some cool stuff there. Dave, what are Absolutely. Your I, I think that that is really interesting, right? And I feel like that might set up uh, the next question that I have for you. So you were talking about how many times you see kind of, we've got robotics, we, we've got a robotic cell, we've got a CNC cell, you see a lot of tending, right? The, the going and bringing and probably taking from mm -hmm. um, those materials because that, that is a good, uh, that good opportunity. Let me ask, as you go and start coupling some of those robotic cells to other robotic cells, are you finding it's it's difficult because the precision has to be um, very, I, I guess, right? It's, it's got to be very precise for the robotic arm or for something to go pick up, uh, pick up what it was before. Are you finding that that's difficult or are you finding that it's easier with some of the softwares you were talking about, with some of the simulations, with some of the vision and technology that now exists? Uh, these are tough questions to answer, Dave, because I have so many different uh, things I've seen where the answer can be yes and the answer can be no, um, depending on what it is. So say there's there's tools that our team's finding are giving them uh, the ability to better connectivity with the robots. Um, mm -hmm. We're using multiple robots in a cell and those robots are handing stuff to each other. There's been a lot of tools already in the environment for that collision avoidance and coordinating those robots or uh, quad arm type controllers that allow those robots to know where each other's at. Uh, I think there's a lot of tools available for those type of systems where you have multiple robots working in an area. Uh, DCS is a tool that's FANUX version. There's different uh, uh, collision avoidance and safety parameters you can put up around a robot to keep them in their own zone. But handing parts back and forth, um, mm -hmm. At a level, I'm trying to understand if how I'm answering your question here, but Dave, is there a different way you can ask it maybe? No, no. As I look at systems, right? So, so as I look at systems, not even necessarily just robot uh, passing off a part to a robot. The more we connect things with potentially robots, but conveyor belts and everything else, the more precise both the front and the back end of the system have to be so that we, we don't have a crash, so that, that we don't have an issue. As I go and think about, you know, of a robot passing to another robot or a robot maybe putting on a fixture so that another robot can pick it up, it becomes maybe not exponentially more difficult, but but everything becomes more difficult. I, I get from my perception in theory. And as you go, guys go and start deploying a bunch of these, are you guys, 
was originally difficult and now you're able to go uh, out those applications are easier because you guys have built up a bunch of knowledge are they easier because of a bunch of different vision systems kind of or perception what are what are you guys mission seeing yeah i think as far as connecting all those different devices and robots um core competency of yep. integration right uh arm is very well versed on that and they have a lot of tools in place for that so it's in a fine what is the right um edge device do we need in place so let's say we're picking something up put on a conveyor but we don't know what size that thing is we need to find the bottom so we don't crash into the conveyor um, try to vision model that and determine with a 3d point cloud the size of that object while it's floating on mm -hmm. the robot end of arm tool or put a scale on the end of arm tool to determine the weight you can do those things, you can develop those models, or you put a through beam sensor above the conveyor and when it comes down and hits that, it's broken, you know that that box or that thing is yay tall, start slowing down the robot because you're two inches away. So there's different times where really trying to keep the simplicity into it and keeping those sensors simple is the right answer and gives you a more robust solution overall. Um, is the complexity developed in some of these models to start doing maybe a point cloud map and understanding the size of that object or uh, different usuals on objects if a robot's trying to approach something closely or force sensors through the robots. Um, robots have different force sensors through their system that you can sometimes tie into or you can put an external one on. So if I just feel a fitment of one object into another, I may do that based on force. So there's a lot of different sensors and applications some are vision some are not that mm -hmm. i would say we'd apply to application yeah. um, I, th I think from connectivity standpoint of different systems into robotics there's a lot of room to go for i'll put the keyword out there interoperability between those different models so those our team does spend a good amount of time sometimes connecting different products from different vendors and getting them to talk to each other. I'm sure, well, Ed, you could maybe talk about that too, right? I do have a question as a follow-up yeah. to that, but there is a, an interesting question I'm able to pull in from chat. So Elias asks, do you run these models on standard edge GPUs? And I think you somewhat answered that, like you, you do run some edge applications, but could you give us a bit more of like the typical architecture? You have the robots running obviously on the plant floor. Do you run, software on some edge devices do you send the data to the cloud like what's the general uh setup when it comes to being able to process that information and make decisions sure sure if we're we're in vision systems typically they're going to have their own pc running that process mm -hmm. and then that's going to communicate either through the plc or the robot so a lot of the high-end vision models and the very complex calculations are running through a separate pc now, if you're talking about transferring data up through a cloud, um, we're, we're getting into Rockwell Factory Talk or Ignition. Um, I don't know that there's many, if, if there's around the vision processing and models, often if you have to bounce out to a cloud and come back, the response rate that you want out of the system isn't always fast enough. So I think that's where we see the, the local industrial PC paired up with uh, the robot controller or with a PC because we want that decision made quickly. Uh, hopefully that answers that question in the right way. Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense, right? If uh, 
I self-advocated a lot for edge devices for that same reason. It, it's similar on the control side where you need to make the mm -hmm. decision. And I think you can offload some of the maybe computations to the cloud, but it complicates mm -hmm. the, I guess, the setup fairly quickly. So uh, I that's definitely, that makes sense. Um, Ryan, on, on the previous conversation, and I guess like I, I want to spin this question a little bit differently in the sense sure. that, I think that there's a lot of innovation that I see happening in language models, in vision systems, um, I guess like areas when it comes to robotics, what do you think is missing? Where are maybe like opportunities if let's say Vlad was thinking of a, I would say like a software startup <laughs> because I think yeah. hardware is extremely expensive. What are like interesting, and maybe not just me, right? Like someone's probably looking into robotics and thinking like, hey, like I could address this problem. What kind of maybe opportunities or problems are you seeing in the space that there is opportunity for disruption? Yeah, I would say some of the biggest ones I'm seeing people try to approach are the desire for automation is high, right? A lot of people want to get into robotics. A lot of companies see the value there. They want to get their supply chain closer to home. Um, robots, can be fairly complex to program. Uh, as a robot by itself, which is just going point A, point B, isn't terrible. Um, my six-year-old programmer robot to dance at home, just a cobot pushing buttons, and it didn't take long to teach him how to make that robot move. But as soon as you start trying to connect different devices and integrate different communication protocols or different um, PLCs and safety, it becomes much more complex. So I think where I see a lot of value coming in is one, the demand is high for a lot of automation robotics. Mm -hmm. People that can handle that level of complexity to do that isn't there yet, right? There's a lot of people that can do that, but the just the number of people in the industry that have that skill set is limiting the amount of automation I think that could be adopted at a rate, right? So I think as an industry, we could move faster a couple different ways. If that barrier to entry on the programming side comes down and becomes easier to understand, or maybe moves into software where you have more people that have that skill set, right? Um, different languages through computer programming type style, right? There's a lot of people that know that type of language that aren't going to know ladder logic and aren't going to know the robot programming side but there's a huge talent pool there. Whereas if you can bring that talent pool into this problem set, you have more resources to maybe solve it. So I see companies approaching that and trying to develop methodologies of using that software talent to program either offline and then bring it to robots or trying to tackle the motion planning of robots. It's a big push and effort and a lot of money going into what I view is trying to lower the barrier entry to automation. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of room there yet for, I, I haven't seen one that's there yet. That's just like get in front of our controls guys that have been doing it for years that they're like this one, these guys got it. They're like, yeah, I see where they're trying to go. That's not quite there yet. And then by that level of complexity it, uh, to envision where these devices connect well to each other and they integrate well and you can use this offline programming model to plug into the real life model and 
have it be relatively accurate. So there's ways to do it, but the level of complexity maybe isn't quite there for the ease of use yet. And it's a really interesting point, Ryan. Like, yes, I'm always conflicted between, you know, releasing more tools to allow, I guess, like features to be made available versus, you know, the complexity. Because I, I also feel that as we, again, as engineers over-engineer certain systems, we yeah. make it a, a steeper learning curve for someone to get into that space, right? And I think that there's something to be said about the, interconnectivity between as you said like robotics then controls then safety then mm -hmm. like networking each one of those could be like an entire 30 year like at least career right yeah. and so keep adding to those things right like there's more features now on robots on switches on plcs than even like 10 years ago so i'm i would say i'm not exactly sure that we're reducing the complexity but i think there's certainly changes being made uh, but I will know if it's necessarily easier today than it was like 10 years ago. It's certainly, it's different, but I don't know if it's, I would say that it's easier. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I was going to say, I, th I think to that point, I think that there is certainly more information readily available, right? There may be more tools, there may be more complexity to it, but you can go to places like solusplc.com because I'm going to have the shameless plug for you, Vlad, to embarrass you one more time. And like those training sites exist, like what you, you're doing, what Sean Tierney is doing, training sites exist for a relatively insignificant number of dollars if you want to spend the money. But you can also go on to YouTube and there is YouTube content about exceptionally technical items that you can go through the process of understanding and finding. And man, 10 years ago, I don't think there was, right? 10 years ago, you were pulling it out of the old timers or reading a 500 page manual or going through and making your own mistakes every single time. So I think that while it gets more complex, hopefully the tools get easier and hopefully the knowledge continues to expand. And I'm going to take this moment to thank everyone who's been sending questions and things in the chat. I know I've seen Ilias in there. I've seen Hank in there with the junior board of directors. Uh, so thank you guys for being here. Vlad and I are both struggling to load LinkedIn chat at the moment. And I think we saw a couple of like very particularly technical questions. I will say again, guys, please feel free to go ahead and ask your questions. We will do our very best to come back and answer those questions, uh, especially very technical ones on the back end. But having said that, we have some people to thank. So we want to thank Vlad and the folks at Solus PLC for going through and sponsoring uh, this episode and the robotics theme in general. If you're an engineer or technician looking to break into industrial automation or upskill, Solos PLC is your go-to resource. They've got these super in-depth tutorials and online courses that cover all the nitty gritty from PLC basics to HMIs and even robotics. And the best part, you're learning from people actually doing this stuff from a living, for the living. No textbook nonsense, just real world skills that you can use. Thousands of students from companies like General Mills, Amazon, and Tesla are already getting ahead with Solus PLC. So whether you're a pro or just getting your feet wet, there's something for you. So what are you waiting for? Head over to solusplc.com and get learning. So thank you to Vlad for going ahead Thanks, and Dave. sponsoring that. Absolutely. I will say, if you guys have missed it, we've had an amazing um, team in general. We kicked off with episode 133 with Pavel Krupa, who is the person doing at least the vast majority, if not all of the Solus PLC um, robotics coursework. So guys, go ahead and take a listen to him. Go ahead and take a watch to all of this stuff. It has been absolutely fantastic. Please make sure if you are 
as excited as an enthusiast or otherwise as Vlad and I, please go ahead and take a listen to all of them. They've all been amazing conversations. Um, I want to go ahead and, and ask uh, some application questions, right? We, we told you that people love robotics application questions. And I guess I want to kind of start saying, you guys do a bunch of robotics applications. Do you have any uh, two applications that kind of stand out because they were really interesting or exceptionally difficult, but you guys got there? Do you have any that you'd perhaps like to highlight? Yeah, I think, um, where we've coordinated the robot perception with the robot or the vision perception with the robot are particularly interesting to me because I, I see that as having a bright future. So where we're finding kind of random uh, pro shapes on a conveyor, random loose protein shapes and finding the length and the width of those, and then also trying to move those into essentially an ever-changing Tetris board. Uh, throws up, we place them there. And the first piece is easy because what happens is you know where the piece is, you go top left corner. But that piece can also change shape from when you took your first picture to when you move it. And then you have to take another picture to determine where to put the second piece and then the third piece. And that level of complexity continues to kind of grow this big puzzle piece, uh, Tetris, where you're trying to fit those different pieces of protein amongst each other uh, on it. So. That one, I think our team's really doing cool stuff on there. Uh, it's again to see that progressing. And to me, that's a just a next step of uh, being. What's the, I guess the challenge there, it's the vision that needs to evaluate the placement. And so in real time, send those coordinates to the robot. Is that kind of like the, I call it the secret sauce or the bottleneck of, of that application? <laughs> Yeah, so protein's moving on a conveyor. So you're line tracking and then you're finding a, a random shape and trying to estimate the length of that shape. But when you pick that shape up, it could change. It's, it's kind of like a right? Um, to take this noodle that I picked up and then figure out where it will fit on a grid and not touch another noodle per se, right? So I have to take a picture of that grid and then I'm trying to take this assumption and hopefully not touch another piece uh, based on that first image, knowing that it may change. So I think just coordinating that back and forth is intriguing to me, right? Sound fairly complex, uh, I'll be honest with you. No, I would agree. It, it sounds complex. And so, so Rain, I guess we've had lots of conversations and not just, hey, I've got this awesome robotic arm. I've got this awesome robotic arm. Sometimes I'm putting it on a an AVG or an ARM. Sometimes I'm putting vision sensors on it. Do you imagine and are you seeing the demands continue to, to increase in complexity? And where do you think that, that complexity is going to lead us to? Yeah, I think it keeps increasing in complexity as far as what people are looking for, but the tools are improving, right? So they're, the tools are allowing us to tackle more complex things. Like I said, I, I'm really intrigued with uh, the learning models. And just recently I saw yesterday the chat GPT vision model. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet, where um, they're uploading a photo and saying, I need to fix my bicycle. Can you help? It analyzes a picture and says, yep, here's how you standard do it. Can you give me more details? And they zoom in on the bike seat and take a closer picture. And it says, oh, yours isn't a lever. It's an Allen wrench. You need an Allen wrench. Then you take a picture of like, do you have, here's the manual and here's the tools I have. Do I have the right tool? And it will yeah. tell them 
Yeah, it's an Allen wrench number four based on the picture of the manual, and you seems like it's in your DeWalt toolbox on the left. So I, I think those pairing those models starting to come together will eventually parlay into automation tools that allow robots to find the best place to pick something or the best way to acquire something. Or So I, I think it's really exciting to me that those tools are developing in that way. Maybe it's a ways out yet. I think it probably is before someone's going to feel confident enough to put it in an industrial setting and guarantee a quality level. But I see those movements going in that direction and it's exciting for me to understand what may be coming in the, in the, for that. Interesting. I don't know, Chad, me... you had image processing. That, that Just to confirm, Ryan, for the listeners also, this is native to ChatGPT or is this some kind of an application on top of it? That's a good question, Vlad. I just saw it yesterday. So, uh, it, yeah, it was literally just yesterday. I think I saw it. So, go ahead. Hopefully, it wasn't no, like no. I'm talking out. Uh, That's okay. I, 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 those tools are, are very interesting, and I can certainly see a bunch of kind of like consumer applications. Yeah. What I look at kind of and kind of the conversations I am hearing is that there is worry when it comes to security of yeah, yeah. hey can i go put co can i go push my image of my factory to this model open source or otherwise and what's going to happen to the data are uh, and i think that there are, are ways around that and i've certainly seen and work with groups who are kind of being the we're going to go have this closed off uh on us are, are you hearing kind of their thoughts of this would be really exciting but we're worried about safety and security of going and pushing our information just kind of over the web. Yeah, I, I think that's always a concern, right, Dave? I think this tool is ready for prime time by any means. Um, know that uh, any companies are going to adopt it right out of the gate here. So I do think that cybersecurity is number one. Uh, we've some projects right now we're talking through uh, privacy and how do you handle that, right? So how are we going to protect those images and remove those images also? Uh, we do tower work as well. So handling any of that data and cybersecurity is always first and foremost. And it's really kind of a, an effort of how are you ensuring that the data is retained here or retained and immediately removed? Um, so how are you protecting our information? So those are things that I think will continue to evolve and the tools in that site and that space will constant battle, right? It's as you improve the security, the ability to break into that security improves as well. So I think it's just a constant effort of people doing their diligence. I think mm -hmm. companies are doing their diligence well and trying to find the right balance of the tools, the risk worst reward. Others I've seen just kind of like it's connecting, that's our policy and we'll have our local network and the tools that are available on the cloud. Uh, the reward isn't worth us risking this yet, right? So we, we see both stances on it. Some people are like, yep, send it to the cloud and um, help across the cloud. So let's connect securely and set it up this way. Interesting. Are, are you seeing certain verticals or certain age of companies are, are less cloud averse or, or more cloud and security averse? I guess, for example, are you seeing automotive is kind of in one sector and some of the, the younger, I don't know, vertical farming groups are happy to go throw everything up into the cloud because they're much more cloud native? Or are you seeing that it's, it's very kind of company dependent as opposed to vertical dependent? Yeah, there's, 
it can be company dependent. I mean, some motives are open to it, but I would say to your point, they're probably much more reserved there with it, where we would see people more open to connect would be more of the startup companies that are a little bit more maybe up to date on their, I don't want to say it that way. There's some automotive companies that really on, on front edge of it, but I would say that you see that differentiator, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I mean, been a lot in the food and bev and like medical device manufacturing industries, I think they're fairly, again, in my experience, fairly cloud native averse. Um, the smaller companies I've been to, namely, uh, there's an innovation on the brewing side that I saw where customers, and again, they're still selling, like when I say customers, B2B, integrated. And I, I think I mentioned it in one of the episodes, they had an application where a customer could log in and they're essentially a co-packer, right? So they could upload their images, they could upload the recipe, and that's tied all the way down for like the, the cloud application down to the plant floor where it could be like scheduled and then it ties back into like the recipe of that control system and then gives like feedback on when, you know, the is going to be finalized. So I think it's, okay. I guess my experience is more on size versus, uh, but then I don't think there's any small automotive companies either. So it's... What? It's Vlad, are you thinking that's... Um... Sometimes I think about it maybe as a risk level, right? If you're making medical devices and there's a risk of someone getting in and screwing up that, if you screw up beer, well, <laughs> the risk of the product that you see it is, or is it the the size and the scale of the organization? In my mind, I, I would imagine a larger organization is probably a more likely target has to fend off more attempts than maybe a smaller unknown type of organization. Yeah, I mean, I definitely plays into it, right? But I also argue that larger organizations can, like, there's tools to mitigate against yeah. that, right? So if you to, I'm familiar more with AWS than, you know, other providers, but there's specific servers you can provision that are, let's say, specific to your organization and not a, let's say, like, shared environment, right? So there's, there's ways that they've built that is good enough for government organizations and their yeah. security. True. So I think it's more than adequate, you know, food and bev and or like medical devices. I don't know enough about, let's call it the FDA regulations and what they, but I, they're more about protecting consumer data rather than, you know, if the data or deviation on the process side, I don't think that's something um, necessarily be that concerned about. But again, I, I not make like too many comments on that side. I think it's. Mm -hmm. I think it, it they also have more of a incentive to use cloud applications, right? Because at that scale, you can certainly simplify a lot of your computing. Um, but again, I, I think it's it has to do with uh, what is the complexity. And yeah. definitely, as you said, like there is risk factors involved, right? Like nothing is without risk. But at the same time, um, if you don't adopt or at least like try and test those solutions, then mm -hmm. at some point someone else will and you see missions in those spaces all the time right where one just mm -hmm. either goes out of business or is just not as profitable as they could be and then either a larger entity or a private equity firm goes in and purchases them so again it, it's hard to say but there's certainly uh yeah, and you said something there too as a you know as a level where you start having multiple site locations mm -hmm. and multiple production capacities available the value of being cloud-based and being able to see that visibility into that capacity, visibility into where I should schedule, visibility into routing, uh, order 
inventory through corporate, right? So mm -hmm. you can see where a large organization really would probably gain more value than a singular entity to, to have that full integration. Um, they would be broader there and they'd have the technical resources available to keep the security there. But I also could see a small organization where the, the team's just tech savvy and they through mm -hmm. the organization because they're do that, right? So probably all over the place, I would guess. I would say kind of perception. I think that there's also a divide between IT and OT, right? So I think for, for larger organizations, if we are buying IT uh, servers every three to five years, that gives us every three to five years to go through the process of saying, hey, what does what makes sense to go up into the cloud versus what doesn't make sense? And I think most groups are running off of G Suite or are running off of Office 365, right? And I think almost all of those are cloud-based or at least, you know, HL-based. And so it, there has been a force of moving at least some of those things up into the cloud as to if we locally back up um, lives on site versus if everyone is just using, you know, the note and their SharePoint and all of those other drives, I think that's a different question. But, but to kind of point of, I see lots of, especially younger or younger, smaller organizations saying, hey, we are cloud native, we are digital native. Yeah. Why would we go buy a bunch of servers and store our stuff on a server as opposed to going and leveraging as much uh, that we possibly can? in the cloud and i see a shift of that from the ot side as well i think kind of to the smaller groups i work with and and i feel like i preface the story every time with please don't you know google sheets for all of your answers but i've seen lots of people go just develop everything that they can or want to on google sheets because it's a development tool that people know and we're already using it for a chunk of the organization we can go use it for kind of the right organization, not all that different to, to Microsoft and Power Apps, right? Like I see lots of IT organizations mm -hmm. say, hey, we can go develop this entire insert, whichever OT tool we want into a bunch of Microsoft Power Apps. And so I think that as we continue to see the, the blur between cloud versus on-prem or IT versus OT, we will see more and made the, the comment of, I feel like five or six years ago, sitting in an automation fair, sitting in a bunch of any of those things, be it automotive or pharma or just kind of any of legacy company, it felt like a bunch of the leaders were saying basically over my dead body, will I go ship my information out to the cloud, even if it's just a mere image of out into the cloud. Yeah. It's, it basically feels like five years ago, it was over my dead body. And now it's like well, not shipping it from remote too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels like we are now to the point of if you're not shipping your information to the cloud, you're five years behind or, or 20 years behind because you, you lose all of those opportunities. So, Ryan, it's been an awesome conversation. We will absolutely continue th this track later, but I, I want to make sure yeah. that we ask you all the questions that, that we ask all of our guests, Let we, lest we completely derail the conversation, which I feel, again, for, for any of our not long time listeners. I feel like this was very much the, the core of manufacturing hub for, for much of the first 50 or 60 shows is a strange thing. Can we talk about for 10 minutes in the beginning and then let, let's go off the rails. Um, yeah. I, I want to go ask you kind of the, the question that I've been asking everyone fairly broad. I, I like to have fun with it, asking about the future. What do you think that the future of robotics looks like, or maybe the future of robotics and automation looks like? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, there's still a ton of room for industrial robots in the use. 
Uh, if you look at adoption rates of industrial robots in China, they're like tenfold what we've put in over here. So I think there's still a ton of opportunity with the industrial robots and cobots are kind of making forward. Uh, they've been in the market for 20 years, but I think people are getting creative on how they're using them. And I think part of that is students are going through high school and college and they're getting exposure through VEX Robotics and FIRST Robotics. And they're coming out of that with eight or 10 years of robot exposure and programming exposure. And they're using these industrial and cobots as tools in their company and helping bring those in as adoption. So I think there's a lot of room there. And I also say like AMRs, they're really just getting, getting started, I would say. There's some adoption in warehousing and e-commerce, but I think that will overflow into many other industries. So just kind of the technologies that are out there right now, I think will continue to propagate. I'm really curious to see where like bipedal robots will go. Um, Bringing to me to watch the the robot dogs and the robot uh, boss dynamics and digit and those mm-hmm. guys expand. Uh, and I know a lot of different opinions on those, but what I want to see from a standpoint on that is it, it opens up all these human centric type facilities to brownfield deploy these type of robots and they'll have the same accessibility range as a person. Whereas if you're doing a green field, you can take away that humanistic limitation and your robots can maybe reach higher or lower and those different places. So I'm curious to see kind of as those evolve, what that perception looks like. And I'm still trying to understand if Tesla's self-learning robot that I saw yesterday is actually legit or again, a person in a suit, but (laughs) (laughs) I think think just there's a lot of effort going into that and it's exciting. And I think we'll see robot perception pick up. I think we'll see manipulation pick up and with the advent of quantum computing rolling into maybe AI. I think the, the sky is really the limit in the next 20 years of what could happen, right? To your point, Vlad, I think we have this convergence of complexity uh, with trying to simplify things, but are we making them simpler, just adding new features? But along with, you know, CLC and what they're doing, how do we bring in uh, and cite people about manufacturing and new students about manufacturing? So we're bringing in school busloads of people from local high schools and college tours to say, here's what we do. It's exciting. And I think the availability tools like Solus help those people come up to speed that are curious, but part of it is just getting them curious and introduced first. So growing that talent pool and and getting those people involved, I think will help continue to advance robotics. So I I guess that's where I see it going. I, I can't envision you know, two's out, but what do you guys see? Uh, it's interesting. I, I'm also curious the types of robots we're going to see. I know that uh, a couple of years ago, there was a project at uh, testing out drones as material delivery for certain yeah. production lines. I don't have any updates since, so I don't know if it's... Uh, <laughs> what being... a tease. What a tease, but, Vlad. Yeah. Well, look, I think that certain companies are certainly testing out pretty much like all of the solutions in their R&D facilities, right? I think that uh, there's something to say about, there's a, a different kinds of robots. I think they're mm-hmm. all being tested. I don't know what I predict in five years, but I think that mm-hmm. there's certainly going to be, I think applications for all of them in very niche kind of like narrow verticals, right? But it's going to be interesting to see how it like shakes up in five years. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how people shape 
move those shapes and forms to tackle those vertical niches, right? I mean, people have a robot vacuum in their house that has cameras and sensors on it that maps the room by itself. And they're worried about these other robots, but there's people are like, oh, the robots, but some of them already have them in their house, right? They're talking to a speaker that talks back. So lots of cool stuff. Absolutely. No, I think interesting. I think we'll certainly see a lot more robotics. I conceptually love the concept of, of the bipedal robots. I, I look to like legitimate industrial applications that that kind of narrows down to a very kind of, and then if we go talk about leveraging them for like security or things like that, I think that there's more efficacy or ethics questions yeah, um, yeah. when it comes to that. I think I read that New York city was deploying like a standing Robocop. Robot. Yes, they, they were deploying Robocop. Maybe this week they were planning to deploy it at like the Manhattan subway station. And I just, I wouldn't be in, I guess I'm not in for, for city subways in general. I'm not particularly, I'm not particularly in for, for, for low cops. And, and that, that my thought on it. I think you guys stay tuned to uh, manufacturing hub. We will continue to, to cover Robocop as, yeah. as, as Robocop c- continues to expand. But no, Ryan, this is awesome. Let, let me go. I want to ask for some career advice, but I think you set that up really well talking about all the busloads of like school age children and college people coming in for that what is kind of the is the advice that you give to them people who come in are like man robots are cool maybe how do i get into this what what is the theme and advice you give to them yeah i think um talk through is you don't necessarily have to be not all careers are engineering careers mm-hmm. so that's not always the path so we have different people on our team that are working with robots that are degreed or not degreed uh there's people that didn't go into automation or engineering that work in automation and manufacturing companies. So you can have different layers and levels of exposure through uh, accounting, marketing, um, technical writing. There's so many different jobs that support the industry. They're also in manufacturing, along with the technical side of building and wiring and programming and designing. So goes into all those different layers in our company. And, and what we'll do is we'll bring them in and we'll walk the floor, show them the different equipment, and then we're going to We'll pop in a room for 30 minutes and have uh, different people from each department kind of say, here's what I do during the day. And this is what it looks like. And it's, it's just an informative um, and talk about what it looks like. Right. So I would, no, I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, th- I think that, that that's interesting. Vlad and I have talked many times on the show and I feel like many people have said, hey, if I was uh, exposed to automation or robotics or manufacturing earlier, and it wasn't just, you know, that that unit father went to and went there for 40 to 60 hours a week and came back and paid the bills, it would be much more eye-opening. So I think it's really awesome that you guys are able to go bring people in to go say, hey, look at some of this cool new technology. There are lots of career opportunities for you. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of toys and different things that are in the STEM programs are very helpful. So you support that and bring that stuff up. There's a caterpillar where you connect different pieces of the caterpillar together as a kid's toy and it programs different turns, right? Or there's another one that um, raw images, but you program it and it has Java, C++, so you can bounce back and forth between these visual programming models. And then you port that to this robot and it draws on a piece of paper and changes if you set that up in your program. So there's just a ton of cool things happening, right? 
No, absolutely. I, I think that, that's amazing. Thank you, Ryan. I'd like to ask for a book recommendation. I know, I know you got a couple, or maybe you got a couple to choose from. But what do you have for the listeners today? Yeah, yeah. So personally, just out of fun, um, Cal Mary by Andy Weir. Um, really interesting. It just blends that sci-fi and the math and the physics with it enough to where it's believable uh, to some extent. And uh, book, the author is Weir, um, and he actually wrote The Martian with Matt Damon. So that's probably the more familiar. <laughs> Um, is the Martian movie with Matt Damon, but he has other books too. And then like career-wise, if you're just getting started in career, I would say a lot of what you do is focused on how you're retrospective and internally looking at how you behave. So Business Reviews, 10 Must Reads on Managing Yourself is a good uh, one that talks about um, understanding your own behaviors and how maybe those will cause other people to interact with you. So... Getting is that control. a book or that's a resource? Uh, it's not an audio book, so it's a, it's on Audible as a single collection. So, you know, it's actually a book, um, collection of 10 different books, right? Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And then I, would, I would say as you move through an organization that are responsible for more people, uh, Code has been really good by Daniel Coyle. And one of the things I really appreciate about that one is it talks about this experiment they do with building a tower of you know, how the tallest tower and they pair up engineers and lawyers, and et cetera. And they pair them up against a team of kindergartners. Mm-hmm. And every time the kindergartners win, um, the kindergartners will talk, they'll try, they'll fail. They're just going, right? They're just trying different things going fast. And the others are trying to logic their way, or they're trying to figure out the politics of different, who should be the one to decide in the kindergartners building, right? So it's really interesting to me that that dynamic can set up if, if those are out of the way, those things are out of the way, you can be much more collaborative and intuitive and successful. So good stuff in that one. No, awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for both or perhaps all of those. Uh, Ryan, this has been an awesome uh, conversation. Last question for you is just reach out. I know you said that I think you guys have at least one position open. You guys looking to, to hire? Are you looking for new customers? Are you looking to have interesting conversations? Uh, how, who of our listeners uh, should go ahead and, and reach out? Sure. Yeah, I, I think um, seven positions open right now. So okay. from mechanical engineering to controls engineering to software to a number of different uh, in CNC and build. So we have a lot of different open positions. Um, for any of those areas or interested in manufacturing, take a look at our website, uh, missiondesignauto.com, uh, LinkedIn feed as well. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn or reach out on LinkedIn. That's a good way to get connected. But looking forward to talking. Awesome, Ryan. This this is fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us. I will say kind of to a point, if you are not connected or following Ryan, please go ahead and connect and follow to Ryan. If you guys are watching on LinkedIn, which of course is where the vast majority of our people are, you guys will go ahead and see Ryan um, as one of the guests. So please feel, yes, that, that is the way. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ryan, yeah. uh, for, for wearing the uh, the Manufacturing Hub sticker. Uh, go ahead, connect, uh, follow Manufacturing Hub Network on LinkedIn. You guys can go ahead and follow us on YouTube for all of these shows, all the clips that come out. If you're already somehow not following Bladder Eye, please go ahead and do so as well as Solus PLC. Uh, check out SolusPLC.com. I don't know, your number one resource for industrial automation training. I think that that's the new tagline. I get to say these things and Vlad never corrects or mutes me, so I'm going to continue to say these things. If you guys have made it this far on podcast form, thank you guys so much. Remember to hit the like, follow, and rate us five stars. Ryan, I have found that if I ask people to like and subscribe, people remember to like and subscribe and more people find us. But until next time, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you.
Well done. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys.